Welcome to the Inside Job Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Kopalakis, and we're back. That was some hiatus between episodes. To be honest, I wasn't sure if continuing with the podcast was even something I wanted to do, but I had numerous people out there asking me when a new episode was coming, and eventually that provided enough motivation to knock out another one. And I had this guest in mind since really since I started the podcast, so I couldn't stop until I had done one with him. I'm hoping to get back to a more regular schedule, maybe once a month with these things. I figure that makes it a little easier on you carving out a little time to listen, and it makes it certainly makes it easier on me to work it around the life of a freelance producer. For those new to the pod this week, I am a freelance video producer, mostly working in sports, but also doing some corporate branding, marketing, and commercial work. The freelance life is a weird one for sure. Work always seems to come in bunches, and there can be long stretches with no dry land in sight, no work whatsoever. It's been a tough adjustment, one I'm still learning to come to grips with. But I do really enjoy the work and the opportunities and having more flexibility in my schedule. And I know that more consistency and more clients are are in my future. There are always trade-offs when it comes to freelance versus full-time, and a lot of them are good. So we're going to keep giving it a go, and hopefully great things are in store. Anyway, back to the podcast. Again, if you're new to this, thanks for downloading and taking a chance on it. You're here because of my guest today, and I appreciate that. I know there are millions of podcasts out there you could be listening to instead, so I really cherish each and every one of you that take a listen. This one focuses on jobs and careers, how people ended up in their chosen profession, what they love about it. This week's guest, one of the biggest names I've had on, is Patrick O'Neill. My buddy Pat is a longtime host and anchor with Fox Sports West in Los Angeles, Emmy Award winner, just one of the most iconic local Los Angeles uh, sportscasters uh, in the business today. He covers the Kings and the Angels primarily, but has worked with every LA team over the years, and we talk uh, about a lot of them. And of course, Pat comes from a famous, successful, and talented acting family. He was so gracious to share not only the many great work stories about Kobe Bryant, Magic Johnson, and and so many others, but also to talk at length about his dad, Ryan, his sister, Tatum, and what it was like growing up in a Hollywood family and how that impacted him. Oh, and there's definitely Die Hard 2 and Beverly Hills 90210 Talk 2. That was a must. All right, let's roll it. But I'll just uh, I'll just shoot from the hip and uh, and and tell you stories from my memory. Yeah, man. Yeah, let's cool. just you know tell some stories and have some fun. I mean, that's that's the best ones are are that way. Like right. uh, Gooby, Billy Mac. Like it was. I had a you know I had all this this whole preparation that I sent you planned out, and then you get in talking with those guys, and and you know I mean that's the greatest thing about about. I think about working in sports is getting to work with people like you or Gooby or Billy and, and, and just talking and telling stories and, and sharing funny things like that. I mean, that's so, so these podcasts have always been great when they've, when they've sort of gone off the rails that way. 
Sure. Uh, yeah, we'll see what happens, but I'll give it a I'll give it a shot. Yeah, yeah. So and Okay. I, I wanted to start I I kinda usually just go chronologically and so I figured, you know, let's start let's start back way back when, you know, man. You're born into this, you know, legendary acting family where you have uh, you know, two movie stars basically uh, TV and movie stars as parents, your mom and your dad. And, and when, when did that even sink in for you as a kid that, uh, of what they do and, and, and what they did for a living? I would have to say right about like in the six, like six, seven, eight, like right around, you know, those ages. But there's a, there's a sense of it's weird earlier than that because you don't really, you don't understand, like, my dad was so famous in throughout the entire 60s, you know, from the show called Peyton Place, which yeah. was on the air three times a week. Uh, that was just, it was huge. I mean, it was, like, in th- those three shows were in the top ten in the, in the Nielsen ratings. And so he was a huge TV star. And then Love Story, which was, like, 70, mm-hmm. and I would have been three. So you don't, you have no, I have no understanding of just, uh, you know, how big that is, except that my dad's kind of, uh, you know, he's just people want, you know, autographs, you know, and stuff like that. So you you don't really kind of understand what's going on. And then uh, it starts to hit you, I think. You just start to realize, like, oh, they're actors, you know, they're, uh, they're always talking to you about it. So you kind of get a a sense of what it is, you know, especially because, you know, Tatum was a, a child actor, right? And my my brother Griffin was a, a child actor. So you kind of think, uh, oh, maybe I could be a child actor, you know? So you kind of have a pretty good sense and understanding of, of kind of what the whole business and or, or what they're doing is, you know? Yeah. You mentioned... And I didn't get it from my mom. Like, I didn't get it... Because my mom had kind of... My mom gave up acting. Like, when my mom and dad... They, they divorced. Like, my dad you know, was, uh, they broke up, right? I mean, yeah. you know, something probably happened on one of those movie sets, you know, where my dad and my mom found out and she was devastated and, uh, she knew somebody in New Mexico and I was like, I was like three or four and we just, and we just bolted in a van, in a, in like a Jeep and we were suddenly, I'm living in, in New Mexico for like a couple of years, Santa Fe, New Mexico. Um, it was kind of, that was a you know weird time, but my mom was successful because she had, was starring in movies, you know, and they weren't all like big successes, you know, but some kind of cult hits like Soul and Green and um, right. I, I Love You, Alice B. Toklas, like those were pretty cool movies and some other ones that didn't really, I don't they were probably released, but they didn't do well, like The Adventurers and The Gang That Couldn't Shoot Straight was with one of Robert De Niro's early movies and she was in Peyton Place also, that's where they met, yeah. she replaced Mia Farrow. And she got pregnant, like, pretty much pretty quickly with me in her first year of working on the show. And then back then, you're fired if you're pregnant on a show, right? Yeah. It wouldn't, they wouldn't necessarily be able to get away with that. But as soon as they found out she was pregnant, they're like, you're fired. It's crazy. crazy. Yeah. And and that experience of going through a divorce, I mean, that's something that, that most of us, you know, unfortunately, in, in the way that things are, can, can relate to. At the same time, with your specific situation... So you have your your sister Tatum and your brother Griffin and that they were child actors as well. And so even though you might not necessarily be around them all the time because of because of the divorce and and splitting time between your mom and your dad and things like that. But you're watching, you know, their their movies and their their TV shows at this point. And and that's got to be really strange for you as well. (laughs) It kind of. Yeah. Yeah. It was crazy. I mean, the the, the fame of of Tatum, especially 
so with Paper Moon and, and just seeing an Academy Award at my dad's house, right? It was just sitting on his mantle and it sat there for, I want to say, till just about like five or 10 years ago. It was always in my dad's bedroom, Tatum's Oscar, you know, and I would just be at that house sometimes alone, like staring at that thing, lifting it and just going, you know, imagining what that would feel like. It was so bizarre to think that there's just an Academy Award right there. It's just mind blowing. But yeah. you know, way back when you don't, you don't see, there's no internet. There's no way of, uh, seeing their work other than the one time you saw the movie. Um, right. Right. unless it was on somehow on, on TV. So you don't, you don't really have an understanding of like their talent or how good they are. It was just like kind of like a weird, it's just all so strange. But the, from hearing from other kids in schools, like Tatum, like especially later with Bad News Bears when I was like a little older then, I was like maybe 10 or 11, and that was a wild time, man. I mean, it was almost like more, I experienced the more of the fame thing just with Tatum, with people that I knew, you know, my my peers, my, my you know, friends or or enemies, you know, that yeah. wasn't, that was just insane. Yeah, yeah, because at that point, I mean, you know, I'm 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 a little bit younger than you, but when I first saw the Bad News Bears, I was in love with Amanda Wurlitzer. Like, you know, that you're you're this is like your dream girl, right? As a as a as a boy growing up, you know, preteen or whatever, and you're playing little league baseball, and here's this girl who's dominant too, and she's cute and all this, and so it just must have been just a wild experience for you. It was wild, Sean. It was unbelievable because back then it was just like there was like two girls, you know, like Jodie Foster, yeah. Tatum O'Neill, you know, and then maybe like Christy McNichol came into the, the mix. But, you know, kids are, uh, you know how it is in schools, yeah. right? Yeah. I don't know if it was necessarily bullying, you know, because I could hold my own. I could have, who knows, maybe I was a bully, but I just know that that um, people were pretty mean it was more like let's take a shot at you to see how you're going to respond like regarding tatum like uh, you know they would yeah, just say um sexual things um right. pretty much most of the time and you kind of had to sort of process that <laughs> especially older kids you know like the 12 and the the, the sure. preteens if you're just 10 you know yeah it was insane man she was she was totally cool though as a person i mean she was so cool, like, but like movie star cool, you know, I mean, they were going, they're on the covers of magazines and they're going to parties. And when Tatum was like 15, she had two cars and uh, living on her own in her own apartment in Beverly Hills. It was just, she would have uh, huge parties, uh, like her 15th or 16th birthday party it was a star studded affair that I didn't get invited to because I was, my mom would let me go. And she one time, she one time fell down in the shower when she was like 12 and I, it was, we had this really cool house. My, my dad had this great house up in uh, Beverly Hills, way up at the top of uh, Tower Grove. It was John Barrymore's like old estate. Oh, wow. It was like a fourth of his old estate. And so it was all split up in the Spanish kind of um, little mini guest yes. houses all throughout the, I guess it was originally all Barrymore's like guest quarters, but it was enormous. And so she was in this one, her bedroom, which was kind of like its own apartment. And she, I hear this thump. She falls in the shower, apparently, and she's screaming for help, right? I'm the only one in there. I go in there, and she's curled up in this fetal position. And she's like, the only thing she says is, call Cher. And I'm like, what? Call Cher. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my God. And, and she's got this phone book, and I run to the phone book, and I go, and I open it up, and I call Cher, you know. 
and then some of his fish didn't answers, and uh, I said, I need to speak to Cher. Tatum's in the shower. She's fallen. She needs to speak to Cher, and then she starts laughing in the bathroom, and so she got me pretty good there. But <laughs> she, was a, she, she was a prankster and a lot of fun, great athlete. Man, we had so much fun because we were just beach kids. My dad also had a house on the beach in Malibu yeah, where he still yeah. lives, so we would either go from that cool house up a tower or just uh, my dad would pick me up Fridays after school, honk the rolls, the, you know, and I'd run out. We'd take Sunset all the way to the beach, and I'd spend the whole weekend at the beach. You know, man, it was – we had a lot, a lot of fun back then. You mentioned it earlier that, you know, seeing seeing Tatum, seeing Griffin as, as child actors, that you thought to yourself, oh, could I be a child actor too? Was that something – and I'm talking this is early before you actually went into it, but was that something that you – were interested in at the time as a kid growing up? Was it something that you wanted to pursue and, and your mom maybe uh, wasn't interested in having you go that route or, or what? Well, definitely my mom didn't want me to go that route. No question about it. Yeah. She, um, she was always very leery of uh, uh, what was going on down there at the beach, you know, um, because it was, I don't want to say chaos, but we're just raising ourselves. We're just, you know, we're just on our own. My dad slept in to like one. Um, and so we would just, you know, anything, anything goes, yeah. you know, it was the seventies, you know, I mean, it yeah. was uh, early seventies. It was mid seventies. It was, it was pretty loosey goosey. Um, but my dad was, was offered, um, or attached to the champ, a movie called the champ that yeah. John Voight ended up doing with, um, Ricky Schroeder. Ricky Schroeder. So, you know, uh, Ryan had already did a movie with, with uh, Tatum, Paper Moon, and so now he wanted to do The Champ with Griffin, mm-hmm. um, who was this musical, like, prodigy, full of energy, like crazy, crazy kind of nutty energy, um, bouncing off the walls, you know, before they could diagnose ADD or anything. And he met with Franco Zeffirelli, who was the director, this famous Italian director, and for some reason, Franco didn't want to give Griffin the part. And so then... Suddenly, my dad's like, like I get, I'm, I'm being driven to this hotel room, and I'm meeting with Franco Zeffirelli. Now, I would have been way too young for the part, right? Yeah. But I just remember being terrified, like just the thought, like, oh my god, like what if, like what if, like I'm chosen, you know? And I wasn't, but I just remember having a lot of anxiety over that. So it wasn't something that I felt like I really needed to do because I could just tell early on it was just. The whole thing was too scary for me, I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but but my, my uncle Lance um, was doing a, he was going to film school. I would have been about 12, and he was doing a movie, and he asked me to star in this uh, movie he wrote and was going to direct for the, uh, for the school uh, cinema department there. Um, and it was like about Michelangelo as a young boy, and I was, I, I was to play Michelangelo, and I was terrified. I mean, I was terrified, and I wasn't very good. I mean, I was like bad, like no, you know what I mean, like really, really, like acting, like no talent, no natural talent. And uh, it wasn't, in t- but I always thought that that's something I wanted to do. I always thought, oh, I, I want to be an actor, I want to be an actor, but um, so I didn't, I didn't get great grades. You know, I thought I could just fall back on acting, which was a bad decision. Um, Eventually, I was sent away to boarding school when I was 15, uh, Robert Louis Stevenson School up in uh, Pebble Beach, California. Mm-hmm. And I was doing some radio and stuff, but then I eventually did a play in college. And then when I was about 19 was when I decided that uh, I'm going to give like acting a shot, but you know, more as like a young adult. You know, We'll come back to that in a second, but you mentioned The Champ, which great, great movie, 
with John Voight and Ricky Schroeder, a boxing movie. And I know that your dad was a big boxing guy, Golden Gloves boxer growing up and, and you know, huge sports fan. So I'm guessing that that side of, of who you became, you know, sort of flourished between you and him and, and that, that sports bond and, and relationship of growing up as a kid with your dad and watching the Lakers and the Kings and, and the Dodgers and et cetera. Yeah. Yeah, well, watching and playing sports with my dad, that was our bond, no yeah. doubt. That was the one connection that I had over uh, over Griffin, certainly, who didn't like sports and didn't didn't play sports. So it was either, you know, watching sports on TV or throwing the Frisbee, you know, for hours or running or jogging or eventually playing racquetball mm-hmm. um, with him for years and years. That was our bond. But, yeah, he was a huge boxing, boxing guy. I mean, anytime the fights were on, that's all we were watching. There's this... The story was is that when my mom was going into labor, he was watching the fights at the like Thursday night fights at the Olympic, and uh, my mom's like, "We got to go," because I was already late, uh, like two weeks late, and he wanted to see the end of the fight before they went. You know, I mean, he's very, very passionate about boxing. We, he was just inducted into the not inducted. He was uh, he received a, a recognition from the West Coast Boxing Hall of Fame for his contributions uh, to boxing over the years, and we went last Sunday. That was great, yeah. and he managed a fighter named Hedgeman Lewis. Um, he picked him up. Um, he invested in him, like kind of like bought his contract, essentially this young fighter from Detroit yeah. who was fighting in LA and uh, fought for the title, the welterweight title like three times, maybe more, um, but lost them all, like lost close decisions or couldn't come out for the 15th or the, the corner man threw in the towel because he got tired. I mean, just, but so, so one decision he should have won. They, I think they either called it a draw or he lost a split decision. But um, so there was a lot of ups and downs in, in the sport uh, of boxing uh, for my dad, but we were always watching the fights. Or one time I went to the fights with him at the Olympic, but it was usually TV. Usually just sitting in front of the TV, scoring the fights, you know. And and he still does it to this day. You know, we were just watching that that Alvarez Triple G fight, you yeah. know, with him and scoring it, and we couldn't believe the decision. So, yeah, what was his scorecard? Uh, oh, we had <laughs> Triple G winning. Yeah, all of us like one one sixteen, one twelve. You know, we had him pretty much winning the fight pretty easily. So. We were all pretty shocked. Like eight of us scoring the five, couldn't believe it. Yeah, I, I thought it was a little bit closer, but but it was certainly not yeah. one eighteen, one ten, or whatever that one judge had for Alvarez. I know <laughs> that was awful. That was that was so awful. That's what I hate about. I hate, but I mean, I, I I just disagree with the scoring and boxing with three judges determining the fate because there's so many mistakes that are made. So I think maybe go to more, go to ten judges, yeah. and then kind of have a different way of determining. The outcome, and maybe get a majority there, a clo- you know, a better majority. I don't know. So, so much money at stake. It just seems ridiculous to have three people determine the, the winner. Yeah, but I digress. Yeah, <laughs> we digress. But uh, so going going back, you said you know you went went away to boarding school. You had a little bit of experience with a radio station at that time, and then doing the play for the first time. So you're graduating. It's 18. You really got to figure out what you're going to do with your life here, and and what what are you thinking at that point? Yeah. Unfortunately, I just, it's like I have two kids. I know you have uh, two kids and we're so invested in, in their, their academics, right? I mean, yeah. and, but nobody, uh, was really truly like invested. I mean, my mom was, but just to the point with threats over if you don't get certain grades, you know, you're going to be in big trouble. Like I was going to go to military school, uh, after my sophomore year of high school. I, if I didn't get a, a certain grade point average, um, I did this uh, summer camp called uh, Outward Bound, the survival camp that was for youth at risk kids, you know. Mm-hmm. But I was definitely not at risk like these other kids were. I'm yeah. like, 
I'm like, man, I'm, I live in Beverly Hills in Malibu. You know, uh, I'm not getting great grades, but these were like car thieves and yeah, yeah. awful, awful, uh, cool kids, I guess, but not, not kids that you had a lot of hope for, you right, know, but right. I survived it. And so I just, they have this really great radio station up there called KSPB. It had like 5,000 watts or more. And I wish I would have taken more advantage of that because I could have just, could just be on the air and just, logging hours on the radio, kind of just spinning music and talking. There was really no rules other than having to play certain music. But right. anyway, the, the, the guy that ran that station in the theater department, I didn't do theater, I just did sports there, um, suggested I go to, I wanted to go to USC film school. I thought, I wanted to go into, into, into movies, but I thought maybe behind the scenes. I didn't think I was going to, at that point, acting was the way I wanted to go. But I wasn't ready for call, like a big college, so I went to the small school, Laverne. And I couldn't believe the only school I applied to and I got accepted. I was like, what? I thought it would be so much harder because I had poor grades. Uh, I mean, like a C, you know, a C student type yeah. grades yeah. and um, got accepted and decided to go to Laverne. And it was my second year at Laverne that I, I did this play for a month. It was like the it was I don't know, it was like this extension class you could take for one month. And that's all I did. And I fell in love with acting at that moment on the stage doing the Shakespeare play All's Well That Ends Well. That like kind of like at that moment. And people were kind of saying, wow, you're really good. And I could memorize. That's one thing I noticed. I could memorize these lines, Shakespeare lines, really, really easily. And I was like, wow, I have a, I have a pretty good skill here. That's what I thought to myself. And yeah. I thought, okay, let me, let me give this a shot. Interesting. And, and by giving it a shot, what did that entail? Well, it's funny. There was this, somebody came and saw the play, liked me and this other actor, suggested us for a movie. I think it was a Molly Ringwald movie. I'd have to like IMDB it, um, where she kind of, her and this, I don't know if she gets pregnant, she's a teenager, this other guy. Anyway, so we, we drove all the way. It was the first audition I ever did. We drove into Hollywood, me and this other guy, for this like really top-notch uh, casting director to read for this thing. It was the first reading I'd ever done. I had no idea what I was doing, and I did not do well at all. And I remember she was she was um, not amused that I wasn't like as prepared or maybe she just didn't see it at all. But it was like, we couldn't believe that we were just these two college kids that were driving into Hollywood to, to audition for like a top Hollywood movie. It was just so bizarre. So then I, I essentially, after my sophomore year of college, um, I think against my parents' wishes, clearly decided to drop out, go into acting classes and get an agent. And all of that worked out really, really easily. Like, um, I had no trouble whatsoever getting an agent. I think it was the Harry Gold agency. And I mean, they, they, like that agency, they represented like young Leo DiCaprio. And um, he was pretty good. His daughter, his uh, Harry Gold's daughter was Tracy Gold. And I bounced around from a lot of different agencies. But essentially, it's all going so easily. I got into like a really good acting class. It was only twice a week, but I'm doing scenes in acting class and I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm making people laugh or I'm, I'm, I'm confident. Um, but then when I went on the auditions for like serious, suddenly like serious parts in TV and, and movies, like not just small parts, like the lead, you know what I mean? And, uh, and I, I choke, I kind of get, I get nervous. I, um, I over prepare, uh, I try to memorize the lines, but then you're not supposed to. I had no idea, like, the, the proper technique of auditioning. I mean, some people are good at it, and most people have, have a real hard time with it because it's not, it's nothing like the scene you're doing. You walk into a room, there's a casting director, or there's 
the callback, and then there's a producer, director, and casting director. You sit in a chair in front of a desk. You, do you stand? Do you sit? Do you lie down? Do you take a minute? You know, I just could never figure out how to do the thing, do the right thing. And, uh, and I got really, really nervous, you know, terribly nervous, and it's such a giveaway. So I was struggling, you know, the first, like for the first two or three years. I got like a little part in China Beach. I remember. Remember that show? Yeah, I was a huge Dana Delaney fan. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> and I, I was playing a guy who uh, just running across the water, holding a machine gun, telling the, the the guy that had a bigger part than me that you know he had to get off the chopper because he's on R and R. What you're on R and R? You know, just silly lines <laughs> like that. Or well, then I got I might have done like two or two parts. Might have been China Beach, then another little thing. I mean, it was so devastating. Like I got a part of Nightmare on Elm Street, like three. Then they called me like the morning of it said, oh, they cut your part. They're running behind and you don't, you know, you're not coming to work. They're not going to do it. You're like, oh my God, you get so fired up. Yeah. Then, uh, then I went in for the Die Hard 2 audition and I actually did pretty well on that audition. And then I got that part. I couldn't believe it. That was like, uh, that was pretty cool. And, uh, but then the funny thing is, is that I thought, let's be really, really authentic and, um, like shave your head, you know, like let's really buzz this down, you know, but if you ever see the, um, the film, like uh, one scene, I'm wearing a hat, like a knit hat over cause it's really cold out like yeah. a ski cap. And the other scene, they shoot me from like behind. You only see my ear. Yeah. You know? So it was the stupidest move <laughs> to do that. And the other thing I did was we were this group, right? Um, where, okay. So, this one of the other actors said, "Hey, you know, Pat. You know, um, I was going by Pat O'Neill because there was another Patrick O'Neill. He said um, we're going to take out an ad in the Hollywood Reporter, and uh, we want you part of it. It's going to say like uh, this is the ca- this is the cast that makes Die Hard Die Harder or something." And I was like, "Oh, okay." He's like, "Yeah, it's a hundred bucks. We'll put it in. We're trying to. Everybody's trying to um, get ahead somehow." So I said, "Sure." Like, well, what could that hurt? Well, Joel Silver saw that in the Hollywood Reporter, and I got a call from my agent, like, what the hell did you do? You know, he was furious. <laughs> like, that guy was, like, really angry to the point where, okay, those nine people that are in the Hollywood Reporter are never going to work for me again. <laughs> it was so stupid. I mean, just mistakes along the way. It was just devastating. The most depressing, you can't imagine how depressing it is. My batting average is probably, probably, like, a thousand auditions wow. and, like, 20 jobs i mean wow. 20 is my batting average yeah. brutal wow man i mean it's a it's, it's a brutal business it is so hard um, you know. and so hard oh and then the other thing that happened to me was my brother griffin who is now had did some movies uh like the escape artist and hadley's rebellion where he was starring in movies at 14 15 16 um and then when he was about 21 he was doing a Francis Ford Coppola film in Maryland. And I, this is right when I was starting out acting, right? Yeah. And back then, you know, my dad's still, like, pretty famous. Um, so it's like, hey, this is, you know, I'm sure my agents were like, hey, this is Patrick O'Neill, you know, or Pat O'Neill. This is Ryan O'Neill's son. You know, he's really talented. He, he'd be great for this part. Oh, okay, we'll bring him in. But then Griffin gets involved in a boating accident that ended up, resulted in, unfortunately, terrible tragedy where Gio Coppola was killed in this boating accident in Maryland. And uh, just you couldn't imagine how bad it was where Griffin said that he, wa- he wasn't driving, that Gio was driving, but then there were witnesses said that Griffin was driving. So there was a the trial where he was um, uh, accused of uh, manslaughter, essentially. I don't know what the, you know, 
obviously I think it's like, you know, inadvertent manslaughter. I mean, he obviously didn't do it on purpose, but he was, yeah. he was drinking, but there was no alcohol test and he didn't have to go to jail. He decided to do some community service. But people, at that point, there was such a black eye, like over her family. I mean, already there was like tension. My dad's, they had a fight, you know, where Griffin's teeth were knocked out. So my dad's like considered like the worst father of the world and mean or whatever and bad reputation. His career's kind of floundering. And then I'm trying to come up and coming and people are like, we don't want to see Ryan O'Neill's son for a part. Jesus, he just was involved in a boating accident. No, 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 it's not that son, it's the other son. Yeah. But that happened, like, every single time. Yeah. And it was just, that added to my anxiety, you know, in a way. Yeah. So it was just, it was rough. It was hard for me to kind of get any footing. I mean, I got a couple parts here and there. I got some commercials, and, you know, I'm vested in SAG, which means, like, you had to make a certain amount of money, you know, to qualify for medical insurance, and then to eventually qualify for a pension. So... For my 12 years of my career, I made the minimum 11 out of 12, you know. So I'm, that's a little proud fact. You can say I was a working actor. Well, at least I tried, right? Absolutely, man. And, and you know, Die Hard is no joke. That's one of the great movie franchises, you know, action movie yeah. franchises ever. And, and you had a, you know, even though the part was small, it was kind of uh, the critical Turning scene point. of the movie. <laughs> no, yeah, we uh, went, remember with, with Sarushi, spo- we went to the, we interviewed Joel. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I know, and he I was like, that. that is the, that was the turning point of the movie. Yep. Yeah. He was very cool about that. Uh, yeah, and He'd I just got a residual you at check, like point. 250 bucks after taxes. Nice, nice. Those, the, how regularly do those come? The, well, the, for some reason, because they booked me for nine weeks on that film, mm-hmm. even though I only worked like two, but they needed to hold me because they shot a fox, funny enough, right? That's yeah. where like one of my first big acting roles, right there on the lot. Yeah. And then... They had to, that's, I had to shoot my like death scene first on the lot. And then the scene, some location scenes, they needed before like six or seven weeks later. You know what I mean? So they said, well, you can't go get another job. So we need to pay you for the full nine weeks. So that means I got paid more, right? right than, right. than normal, yeah. which was great. But that means my residuals are based off of how long I worked on the film. I mean, there's no way I should be still getting residual checks for that much money 30 years later, but. Yeah. I'll take it. <laughs> it's I mean, that's the only one that pays me. That one, I did the Wild Hogs. That pays me a little bit. But the rest, the rest of them, I'll get a check from, like, that Nightmare on Elm Street that I didn't even do. Uh-huh. I still get residual checks for that for, like, 30 cents. That's amazing. That is amazing. <laughs> I can't believe it. You, you cash so those, right? I'm still you in cash, SAG. You, cash you know what's those. weird is that, like, why? let me ask you this. Yeah. Why is it that I've been a sportscaster for over 50, like, 17 years, right? right. I've been in SAG that never once has anybody ever uh, said, hey, let's get Patrick O'Neill to play the sportscaster. Yeah. I mean, is it is it because I'm like, I don't even, even though I'm a sportscaster, I'm not the typical type for a sportscaster that they could put me in a movie. Anyway, I, that just sucks. I think, like, man, I could do that. Look at me. I'm a sportscaster and I can act. <laughs> you not even a sniff. Now, uh, Gary Cole and Jason Bateman were phenomenal in dodgeball, but could you imagine a part like that? I mean, you know, you would have tore it up. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. Jason Bateman is pretty good. No, Bateman's phenomenal, and, and Cole is the straight man in that. But uh, yeah, yeah it's, I, it, I think it, I'd be on. the straight man. We 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 got to we got to get you a role. This is ridiculous. I think so. This is ridiculous. <laughs> uh, the 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 one other the one other credit that that we have to mention is is the Beverly Hills 90210, man. I mean, you know, oh, that's one of the right. biggest TV shows, you know, of the 90s that that there was. And and you, 
you have a credit. I was so pumped when I got that part. And I remember absolutely crushing the audition. Like, every once in a while, you felt good in these auditions. You know what I mean? Like, and I always felt good on the auditions when I wasn't, like, the main guy, but I was more like the sidekick friend that had, like, an attitude or was mean or something or funny. Like, I, I was always a little bit more confident in those situations. So I crushed the audition, got the part. I was surprised I suddenly had, like, a buddy, you know, with me, but whatever. And he took a couple of my lines, but, you know, that's fine. And, um, yeah, man, I was just so fired up for that. I thought it was pretty good, too. Pretty good. I mean, I wasn't, I was still a little, I look back on it, I'm like, yeah, a little tight still, you know, a little over the top, but it was fun. <laughs> it was fun. That was the first year. I mean, that was, they didn't even know what they had. It was the first season. Right. It was like the, I don't know, maybe the eighth or ninth episode. The show hadn't really taken off, but it was getting a lot of buzz. Yeah. And, like, Jason Priest, who was totally cool. Yeah. Uh, Luke, what's Luke's last name? Luke Perry. Luke Perry was awesome. You know, they're in the makeup room. They got the sideburns. <laughs> I thought the girls were a little snooty. Yeah. Um, and uh, the girl that I ended up with was like date raping yeah. was this girl from Doogie Howser, and she didn't like me at all. I don't know if she was like a method actor or uh, something. Maybe, yeah. But like, <laughs> she, maybe she knew what I was up to and didn't didn't really like me very much, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> that was fun, man. The Gentle Art of Listening uh, was the name of the episode. Get in the car, Bonnie. Not tonight, George. Yeah, tonight. We won. We've got to celebrate. I, I, uh, what's the matter? Don't you like us? Don't you know how much we like you? And then the other guy's like, and want you? Get in the car, Bonnie. No, George, no. Okay, then I guess we'll just have to do it standing up. And then the cops come. And, they put the, and then if you notice, and if you ever watch it back, like how quickly and how easily the guy gets me against the car and cuffs me. No resistance whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. Well, you were pretty heinous, you know, so... <laughs> uh, I watched Beverly Hills 90210 from the very beginning, so so I was on board yeah. uh, from the very right. Beginning. You know, I was right. I mean, you I, wanted me, busted, I was, man. Oh yeah, I, I was yeah. I was 15 or 16 years old at the time, something like that. I mean, that was like yeah. right in my wheelhouse, and so was Die Hard. George, that was George Sudaris. That was my guy. He's on the football team. Yeah, and I saw Ian Zyring at the uh, like a Bristol Farms like a year ago, uh -huh. he, and we had like a scene where we high five each other. He's like, "What are you guys up to?" Yeah, I'm like, "Nothing special." He had no <laughs> recollection of me at all. <laughs> well, because you should be, you should play a broadcaster or a sportscaster in, in a Sharknado. That'd be I know, bring man. a full circle. You should have told them, like, dude, there's a part for me, I'm sure, in the next Sharknado. I tell you, <laughs> you know, you, you, it's, it feels like begging. <laughs> it feels like begging. I don't need it that bad, I guess. No, no, I think you're doing okay. Uh, let, let's swing back to sports then. So you come of age in, in the eighties as a LA kid with, you know, everything in the world of sports is happening in LA. The Dodgers win the world series, 81, 88, the Raiders get Bo Jackson, like towards the end of the eighties, Gretzky comes and joins the Kings and, and the Lakers obviously, you know, dominate the decade along with my Celtics. That, that, that was, I'm sure Again, you know, your dad and his his sports passion and all that, but also being a kid in L.A. at that time, it had a huge impact on on you and, and where you got to at this point. I was obsessed with sports in L.A., absolutely obsessed. Enormous Lakers fan, huge Dodgers fan. Absolutely. Once Gretzky came with the Kings, I was going to every single game. I was going to... 
a few here or there in the mid-'80s. didn't go too much with the Triple Crown early 80s because my dad never went to any games, but we would watch the games on television. I went to so many Laker games. I kept all my ticket stubs. I was going to Super Bowls. I was at the finals with, with John McEnroe against the Celtics. We were golfing in San Diego. We missed the first quarter of a finals game on, with courtside seats, but I ended up in Sports Illustrated anyway, a picture with Byron Scott dunking over, yeah. like, McHale with Bird up in the picture, and you see me in the little lower half there. Yeah. Um, it was the time of my life, man. I was, you know, I'm so blessed because I'm not, most of the time I'm going with, like, McEnroe, and I'm getting, we're getting, like, I, you know, seats on the glass or sitting courtside. So, I mean, I just was absolutely just obsessed with sports and had so much fun going to all these games, you know. Yeah. It was in- incredible. I, I wasn't at any of the great Dodger moments, though. I wasn't at the World Series or an 81 or 88, but uh, I got a chance to, you know, go down to the Dodger dressing room once where my buddy, Michael Carter's dad was Jack Carter, who was this famous comedian, just passed away, but he got us down in this room because he knew Tommy, and I just remember these guys rocking around naked and, like, Dusty Baker signing an autograph with me, but naked. <laughs> no lie. It was it was pretty scary. <laughs> and, and you mentioned Johnny Mac, and so he was married to your sister uh, at the time. Yeah. And, and that must have been a surreal thing to, to become friends with, you know, arguably the most famous tennis player, uh, you know, certainly at that time uh, in the world. Well, this is what makes my childhood or even like my teens and all the years so bizarre. I mean, because everybody that I was associated with is like so incredibly famous, like, like, like world famous, like, because then Farrah Fawcett comes into the picture with yeah. my dad in like the late seventies and Tatum's huge famous. And then Tatum marries John McEnroe and, and then they're friends with really, really famous people. And you're starstruck, you know, you're totally overwhelmed. Like me, I'm like, I'm totally starstruck that you lose a sense of like what you, who you are, or what you want to do, you know? So it was, yeah. I think there was a challenge for me to really, um, like early on, you know, with, with, with school or like, Hey, but what do I need? You know, this is, I'm having too much fun, yeah. like yeah. cruising around with all these really famous people and going to really cool places to say, I got to buckle down. What am I going to do with my life? Kind of was a little late bloomer in that respect with self-motivation. I always wanted something. I felt motivated to do something, but I think it set me back a little bit, but, those were some great times, man. Luckily, I'm working now because I sure did waste a lot of time back then. Waste, but you know that's it was experiences. Life is about experiences, oh. and you certainly you yeah. know, had them. And and I'm just curious about your friendship with with McEnroe because his public persona, obviously, from the foul mouth, temper tantrums on the court, and things like that. But I imagine you know that that it's not that way when 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 you're hanging with them that that you know how was how is that friendship how is that relationship from the the second i met him the uh end of 84 when he was number one in the world mm-hmm. right i mean he had just won two majors that year lost in the finals though lendl at the french could have won three out of four and he'd even play the australian open back then it was, it was just it was mind-boggling to me just how like famous he was like he, it was you know but also what a tennis player he was so not only is he incredibly famous he's an incredible tennis player he's number one in the world he's like hooking up with my sister and he's really fun to hang with we're talking like i'm like how is this guy 
I mean, we're partying, you know? I mean, yeah. I'm a teenager. I mean, there's like drinking and um, parties and uh, not watching him play a lot of tennis, just like, just like that. We went to a New Year's party. I mean, it was unbelievable. Yeah. So we became like great buds. And I got to travel the world with him. I got to go to Wimbledon and uh, watch him at the U.S. Open in 85. I was there. And, and we just became like great, great friends. It was pretty devastating when they divorced, like in the early 90s there. But um, we, we remained friends. a little harder now. You know, I don't see him that much. But sure. still, we had some great, great times. And, um, you know, it was, a big, it was a big and important part of my life because he always he believed in me and was always very supportive of me, too. Oh, great guy. Yeah, you don't really see the the temperament that he, that was kind of on the tennis court. I yeah. think not so much in in real life a bad uh, uh, a temper so much at all. Pretty calm, yeah, pretty chill guy. Me seem. I mean, seem, he had that New York kind of vibe, right? And you could sense that that stuff was in there. But you know, they used to pay him money to throw t- uh, temper tantrums. No, not so much say, in the majors. Yeah, he he was a performer. I mean, you know, yeah. just, just he was a performer. It was performance, no doubt about it. They would give these guys hundreds of thousands of dollars to go to these tournaments around the world, not including what the, um, you know, prize money is just like appearance. I, I thought that'd be like illegal or something. I'm like, really? No, you get paid to go. And then they, you know, if you could just sprinkle in a couple of, you know, umpire abuses along the way, that'd be great. Fans love it. <laughs> He's making so much money. Yeah. No wonder he still plays. <laughs> So just filthy rich, huh? Just yeah. you know, buying paintings and uh you know, they make so much money off of the uh not just in the prize money, but endorsements like Nike and stuff, just crazy. Yeah. I used to get free swag. That was what was also cool. Oh, yeah. Like the Nike the Nike tennis guys, like when I went to college at Laverne, I had like such great Nike gear, like I wish I still had some of those Jordans, you know. Yeah. yeah. So I was living in a lot of Nike track suits and Jordans back then. <laughs> They used to send me boxes, man. I would literally call the Nike rep guy, and they would just mail me boxes of gears. Freaking awesome! That's that's amazing. That's awesome. Nothing like free swag, yeah. even to this day, right? Yeah, love it. <laughs> <laughs> so I saved, I saved some, like in a box. I'll like open up. There's this like really bad bad Nike tennis jacket. Like, remember they changed their logo? They went to like instead of just the yeah. swoosh. It kind of went to a little square, yeah. and then the logo, the swish was inside a square, and there's all these checks around it. And I mean, that was kind of the tennis look back in the '80s. Kind of, kind of look at it now, you're like, oh, it's awful. But it's kind of fun to have some of those shirts every once in a while. Yeah, you can break those out at some, you know, ugly '80s parties or things of that yeah. nature. Yeah. <laughs> so, but let's let's uh, move forward then. So the acting thing is is like we said, it's a tough tough business, and and there's a lot of you know different things that you're struggling with there when what made you finally decide to to give up acting and and kind of i guess focus on broadcasting or or was it even a focus on broadcasting at that point did did you have a plan i did i mean i always wanted especially when espn first like when espn in the late 80s became so huge with sports center like with um with Keith and Dan, like I used to try to rush home and, and, uh, see that show. And I just thought I was so I was so enamored with broadcasters. And and also I, I felt like the broadcasters like Howard Cosell and I loved Monday night football and I loved how he did the halftime highlights. And I just, I just thought they were the greatest. So I almost felt like, like the sportscasters, I kind of put almost on the same level as, as the, uh, as the athletes. And, but my, my career, my acting career took a lot of ups and downs. Like I, I ended up so kind of devastated with how things were going the first couple of years of doing it 
in L.A., like getting really close on movies, like a lot of second choices, a lot like I went up against Brad Pitt like early on in a show called Cutting, a movie called Cutting Class, just down to me and him. But then I heard him through the door do his lines, and I was like, that's not the script, you know? I mean, he's like ad-libbing and stuff, you know? Yeah. He sounds really natural. <laughs> and I, of course, went in. I, was, I had already lost the part before I even went in the room. And it just, be, it just ate at you that I moved to New York and lived in New York for like four years trying to do, you know, plays and shows there. And, you know, and, and then came back to L.A. eventually in like 05, 06, I'm sorry, 95, 96, and became a better actor like at that point. Like I was more confident on the auditions. And I started to get some parts like a little bit more in, in those years. And then it came down to a couple of things that were just devastating. Like one was I got a part in this movie called Conspiracy Theory where like I was supposed to have a scene with Mel Gibson where I was the doctor and he's handcuffed and he's like vomiting and, and I'm supposed to be like, have like this interplay with him where I'm like, yeah, you know, we need a crash card in here, stat. You know, what's his vitals? What's going on? Or everybody out of here, let's go. And I had this whole thing and it was just me. And so I'm like ready for the scene and then we start to rehearse and somebody else is doing my lines. And I'm like, and I'm like, wait a second, those are my lines. And this camera guy goes, not anymore. And everybody laughed at me. Big, big laugh. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? Oh, we're splitting up the scene. We're, we're splitting it up. Yeah. Turned out it's Mel Gibson's brother, right? And I was just <laughs> so upset. And I'm like, all right, I really hate this business. Then I got an opportunity for a show called Band of Brothers because I'd met Tom Hanks, Rita Hanks, through John and John's new wife, Patty Smythe. They were buds. Rita thought I was great, contacted me through Patty, and then Patty's like, hey, they got a part for you. I'm like, are you kidding me? Yeah, what is this? So I call my agent. I go in. I find out it's like Banner Brothers. Audition for it with Tom. He's so cool. He's like, just sit there, relax. Just read it like it's a radio show. It doesn't matter. I just want to hear you. He's like, so nice, engaging, kind, not like other people where they just don't even pay attention to you and throw you out of the room and are rude. He was like really caring. I get a call back. Now Spielberg is in the room filming me with a small camera. And I'm doing lines with Tom Hanks, and it was pretty simple. It wasn't the lead. It was just one of the brothers. You know, I'm like, it's cold out. I got the gun. And it turned out, and I was uh, with my ex, uh, still together with my ex, and we got two, uh, one kid, one away. And I think for sure I'm going to get it. It's like six months in, in England. I'm like, I'm like 30 years old. I'm like, this is going to be the start of my career. And I get the call, but I didn't get it. And I was like, I told my, um, you know, we weren't married, but essentially my wife at the time. And she thought I was going to get it. And I just looked at her, and she's like, yeah, yeah. I'm like, I didn't get it. And she just started bawling. <laughs> like, hysterically crying. But I was, I had this epiphany where I said, at that moment, I said, it's over. I knew it was over. Just for some, I just had this thing. It's like, I don't want to, do, I, don't, I don't care. It's not, it doesn't matter to me anymore. And I decided at that moment that I was going to find another way to make a living in my life. That exact moment. And within a year... I got my first job overnight radio at Fox Sports Radio within a year of that epiphany, and I haven't stopped working since. But I got lucky, yeah. and I could tell you about that, but I don't yeah. want to talk all day, but that was the moment, you know. Well, that's what we're here for, is for you to talk, so. <laughs> but, I mean. <laughs> okay, well, then I'll tell a, you what happened is. It's such a brutal, it's such a brutal business. That, that, that business, that? Oh. man, the, the show business is so, so devastating and brutal. I mean, I just can't imagine having to go through, like you said, a thousand auditions for 20 parts. I mean, you know, and then, and then for that last one there, you're thinking that this could be the start of something enormous. 
Hank Spielberg and to not get it, man. God, I feel, yeah. I feel for you. And I knew both of them. Like Spielberg used to come over to my, my mom was married to a man named Guy McElwain, who was like the head of, first he was like the president of ICM, which is a huge agency. Then he was like president of like Columbia Pictures or some major studio. And he used to have these Monday night football parties where Steven Spielberg would come over, right? Um, but I was just like a kid, you know? So that was another thing where I got to see the other side of Hollywood behind the scenes, you know? And so I thought, man, Spielberg remembers me. Tom Hanks is really cool. And I'm not that bad in the part, you know what I mean? I was like, I probably wasn't amazing, but I wasn't like I totally gagged in there. Yeah. You know, and then to not get it, you're like, whoa. And I've seen Tom since at a Laker game, and I told him I thanked him for not hiring me because <laughs> it started my it started me on the path to my career. But yeah. my aunt, and he's like, oh, okay. Um, but I, uh, <laughs> my aunt, my mom's sister's husband, they're no longer together, his name is David Ladd, who would, was married to Cheryl Ladd. Uh-huh. Um, he knew a guy named, um, oh, Jesus, uh, Terry Jastro, who would produce for Jack Nicholas. Um, these uh, ABC, you know, they would do these um, golf sure. specials that would air on TV. He stuff. would produce those. Yeah. So he was in sports. Because I said, I want to get into sports, and i got to figure out how I'm going to do it. So that's when I said, I, 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 because my ex was like, you're passionate about sports. And she always said, you should be a sportscaster. And I said, no, you can't do it. You can't be a sportscaster. you got to move. you got to travel. you got to start somewhere small. But, I, you know, I have to thank her for, you know, believing in me. And, but... David Ladd called Terry Jastrow, who knew a guy named, um, oh, this is where the memory is going to get me, Bill Brown um, at Fox, who was an executive at Fox. And so Terry called Bill, and I, suddenly I have a meeting with Bill uh, at 20th Century Fox, uh, Fox Sports, in their big building there, about getting being a PA, um, was going to be the job that I was going to go after, and eventually maybe I could be uh, work my way up in, the, in a TV truck, you know, because I really love sports. Yeah. And he's like, I can give you this job as a PA. Said, but they're all 20, you know, really young, you know, uh, but I sense that you would be good in front of the camera. You know, he knew I was an actor and whatnot. Would you be interested in doing that? And I was just like, you got to be kidding me. I'm thinking to myself, I said, absolutely, absolutely. So we're going to set up an audition for you. So I went home and I'm like, unbelievable. Basically, now I have an audition um, for back when they had the National Sports Report. And I was going to do it. I had like four days to prepare. I had the the video, the VHS tape of the show that I was going to do. So I'm like, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm so prepared. I mean, I watched this tape for hours. And I basically went in and Chris Myers was, me and Chris were, were doing a 30-minute show. Chris didn't want to do it. Um, and we did one, they didn't give me an IFB either in my ear. And so that was, but I didn't, I was really green. I didn't really understand what any of that stuff was. Yeah. But I remember Chris just bailing on me after one take. They said they want to do like another segment. He's like, I got to write. I don't have time for this. Bam, he's gone. Yeah. And so I'm sitting there and out of nowhere, and you'll love this if I haven't told you, Steve Lyons <laughs> runs across the stage, <laughs> dives over and slides across the desk and lands in the chair. He's like, I got you. <laughs> And I had just met him like a couple of days earlier, you know, when I was, I, I was able to be, um, I was able to shadow and, and go in there and watch how they do it and stuff to really be prepared. And so I did a 
segment with, with Steve. Now, I didn't have an IFB, and I think they put up a wrong score on me to see how I'd react, and uh, uh, I think I got thrown by that. Well, long story short, George Greenberg saw the audition on tape. I get a call like a week later or something from George Greenberg's office, who was an executive at Fox, not at Fox Sports. He's not there anymore, I don't think. I, get him, I come into George's office, and he's like, I got to tell you, he said, yeah, you're green, but that was the best audition tape I, I, I've seen, I don't think he said ever, but he said, I've got hundreds of these, and that's the best one. He said, uh, I think I want to put you on the air um, with, like, with like Randy Sparaghi at like yeah. midnight, um, but you got to be prepared if like, the president dies or something, you're going to be doing uh, news. I'm like, let's do it. You know, I'm pumped. But yeah. then he couldn't, he couldn't get that passed, I guess, uh, big, bigger guys. You know, they're like, we can't put him on the air. Are you crazy? Um, so I did two more auditions that were not with guys like Chris Myers or, or Steve Lyons. They were with people that hadn't done it before. They brought this newscaster over from Fox. She'd never done sports. So now you got me green and her not knowing sports and we were awful. And then they said, okay, we got to do another audition. And then it was like this girl that was like, um, she'd been an assistant that wanted to get into sports and they did her a favor and gave her an audition. And the two of us had no chemistry. Yeah. So then George is suddenly like, yeah, it's not going to work out. You know, um, it just, uh, sorry. I'm like, but, 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 and he had mentioned Fox Sports Radio to me. So I'm like, hey, what about Fox Sports Radio? You, you had said, he said, oh, yeah, I totally forgot. I kept bugging him. I kept bugging him. He said, let me get, okay, let me get, I mean, Fox Sports Radio was just launching. Yeah. He called Tom Lee, and I got an audition for an update anchor, and I got in there, and I did well, and I get a call from Tom Lee. I, was, I remember I was up in Palo Alto watching John McEnroe play a seniors event. I'm on a payphone. They said, call Tom. I call him, and he says, well, here's the deal. You did good. We'd like to hire you, but the only spot we have available is, is uh, 12 to 5 a.m., Monday to Friday, for 30 bucks an hour. Are you interested? And I was just like, absolutely, yes, 100%. 100%. Hung up the phone. I was so fired up. That was like that was like 19, that was 2000. This was the year 2000. I think it was like um, August, and I started in September, you know, on the radio, overnight, <laughs> with like Andrew Siciliano. He would come in in the morning after me, you know. So it was a great, uh, I almost got, you know, I almost didn't last two weeks, but <laughs> I think they wanted me out of there, some of the guys, but I survived. Amazing. It's awesome. Yeah, 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 that's great. So lucky, right? I mean, how it, how it all, how the timing and other things, and who you have to call, and and you know, if I don't get my foot in the door, you know, but once I got my foot in the door, I wasn't, you know, you have to then prove yourself, right? You have to be good, and I really, I mean, my update started midnight, but I would start preparing at like eight p.m. and then I would get home at five, uh, five thirty, sleep till two, wake up, go pick up my kids at preschool, you know. Uh, come back, start preparing. And then I went to six days a week, you know, and I ended wow. up doing that for almost, uh, almost two years, like 22 months, 20 months. And then I got the opportunity to go over to Fox again, Fox sports TV to do, um, game breaks, not game breaks, uh, updates. Cause they national sports report had just finished. And now they were doing like three times an hour sports updates for like the best damn sports show, or just, that would just pop on the air. Yep. And I auditioned for that. And then they said, yeah, we're going to hire you like Benji case. It's like, okay, we'll give you two days a week. And then, then I basically got a little more, and then I quit the radio. And then uh, now I'm on TV, and that was like in April of uh, 2002. And then, then I was off and running. Yeah. You, you, you say lucky, but, you know, you make your own luck. You're tenacious. You utilize any connection that you, that you have. And this is 
this goes for anybody. It's not just yep. you know, uh, well-connected Patrick O'Neill. Anybody who's listening to these podcasts and thinking they want to break into the business, it's like that's what it takes. It takes you got to milk every single connection you have. It, you got to be a pest. You have to be tenacious. You never say no. You take whatever. You take the overnight radio gig when you wanted to be on air doing the national sports report. Right? You you don't say ah that's I'm 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 you know you were going to take a PA job. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I was. You know, I was. If it not for I'm Bill sure. Brown just giving me a chance, yeah, exactly, uh, that, that's and, exactly right. But but and that goes, you know, to to even though they didn't necessarily give you that the the on air gig right away, that that I'm sure that stuck with some people in management saying this guy wants it. He's hungry. He's gonna he's gonna he's gonna improve. He's gonna get better because you can see how passionate he is that he was willing to take a PA job at that point. Um, so you know, you you make your own luck. Yeah, I was really prepared to to just grind out, and I did. I mean, those were hard. You know, that that was some definitely some hard hours. But I just remember the first uh, two weeks. This guy Dan Cilio, who's a, a big, uh, he's like a former nose guard that played on like the University of Miami national championship team, or maybe the team that lost to Penn State, but um, and also the one that that lost to uh, Flutie, I think, right? But he he kept saying, "I want you involved. I want you involved. Like, work me into the updates. I'll try to bring you on." You know, but but I was kind of messing up my updates like the first week. I was struggling. You know, it was the first time ever doing it. Nobody's there at one in the morning helping me. You know, I'm on my own. I'm forgetting to turn the mic on. I mean, I was I would make mistakes with mispronunciations. I mean, there were a lot of mistakes. Luckily, I mean, I could have been fired like on the spot for some of the mistakes that were being made. But he was also getting upset. You know, I think he he thought I was hurting his show. So one time, like he started ripping Chick Hearn, and I was a huge Chick Hearn guy, and he's like. um Oh my God, I just listened to Chick Hearn. He's awful. He's terrible. He's making so many mistakes with these names. I'm like, I can't believe he's on the air here in LA. Take a shot to Chick Hearn, you know? Yeah. Jeez. So in, in my update, I was like, at the end of it, I just was like, you know, and the Lakers um, were able to outlast the Utah Jazz, and uh, Chick Hearn remains the uh, greatest living sports caster of all time. <laughs> hey, we'll be right back. <laughs> and I, and, and uh, he heard it. And then the next night, um, they set me up, right, where um, he brings in the board op. He's like, hey, hey, uh, hey, Stevie, did you hear Chick Hearn tonight? He's like, yeah. Was he terrible? Oh, he was terrible. He was so bad. The worst. He's making so many mistakes. Get this guy out of here, right? So now my update comes up, and I'm like, and the Lakers received their championship rings at home, and Chick Hearn just announced his 4,000th consecutive game, the greatest. Well, we, we did like um, – I did like a, a minute, and then there was a break, and then there was a minute. That's how the uh, it was like twenty. It was the top of the hour, twenty and forty, and the top of the hour was two minutes break, and then a minute, and then the uh, the twenties and forties were a minute of break and a minute. So this was one of the twenties or forties. He comes storming in, and uh, I only have a minute before I got to do the second half, you know. And he's like chasing me around the the something in the little studio. It's like a middle council area, and I'm like, Dan, Dan, he's really big, dude. He was so mad. This is my effing show. It's not your show. It's my effing show. <laughs> oh, man, we had to both go meet with Tom Lee the next morning, you know. And I was like, I think I got to go to HR and say, man, I was like being like chased around, you know, because I didn't want to lose my job. But somehow we worked it out and continued to work with each other. I tell you, I don't know how I survived, but thank God I did, you know. <laughs> God. It's, it, it, it was rough. These are, <laughs> these are great stories, man. And we're going to come back to, to your career here in a minute. But I want to take a little little break for my fun segment. We call it three spree, three topics. Uh, you give me three things on each topic. 
Um, some of them are sports, some of them are not. But the first one, I remember, I think we were in Denver or maybe Utah. It was after a Laker playoff game. We were eating dinner, getting a beer or something. And somehow I started talking about um, this TV show, Big Love, on HBO. This was like mid-2000s or late 2000, like 2009 maybe or 10, something like that, 8, I don't know. And you're like, oh, yeah, my friend Harry Dean Stanton, he's on that show. And, and you, like, punt, pull, pull up your phone and you, like, call him right there at the, at the dinner table. And I'm like, my jaw, like, hits the floor, you know? I mean, I knew, you know, I knew, you know, we, we, were, we were coworkers at that point, not as good at buds as we are now. But it was like, this is so cool. You just, and you got his uh, voicemail. That, it, he sounds like when you, when you, it sounds like I'm big time name dropper, you know, let me call who I know, no, but no. Harry was like a great friend, a really great friend. And, um, no, and you could tell that I was soul. like, I was, you know, I was such a big fan of the show and you're like, oh yeah, I know, I know you know, I know Harry Dean. It wasn't, you weren't like name dropping. It was just like, it was, right. it was like, it was totally in the flow of the evening, but I was like, this is so cool. So. So that leads me to my that leads me to this first. Yeah, he was really he answered too, right? <laughs> I think you got his voicemail. I think. I oh, think, did I? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, unfortunately, he passed away this year. And, and uh, yeah, you know, tremendous, yeah, good life, tremendous though. actor. Yeah. Who are the three biggest stars you could call up on your phone right now? Okay, so yeah, I had to, I knew this was coming, so I had to look go through my phone because I wasn't sure. So I have a not I'm counting give you, Steve um, Lyons, an extra not, credit not, one, not counting Steve Lyons. <laughs> right, 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 right. Um, and I'm not going to go like, because I got sports guys, right? We've talked about McEnroe, and I got Gretzky in there, who I know. Yeah. But, so I'm going to go, I'm, I'm going to give you three obscure ones, and then three who I think are the, um, like, who I think are the most famous. Oh, so nice. the, you want the obscure ones yeah. first? Yeah, yeah. Lorenzo Lamas, <laughs> Jason Gedrick, Jason. and Nastasia Kinski. Okay, so I thought those were the, the most random. Yeah. Um, and totally. then, who I think are the most famous, I've, I met John Voigt at Nate and Al's, and he gave me his number. And I've texted him numerous times, and he doesn't text me back. Um, <laughs> maybe his number has changed, but John Voigt, Jason Bateman, and Ralph Macchio. I think, I think like, legitimately, like, you know. Those are the three I'm going to go with as far as fame, famous. What do you think? Yeah, no, those are great. I mean, the Karate Kid, Bateman, you know, love Bateman. Anything he does, everything he does is fantastic. I know you're good, good friends with him. Uh, yeah, those yeah. Are, those are great. The John Voight one too comes full circle back to the champ, right? That that you. I know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Did yeah. you tell and him? John did Voight you tell him that story? For love story, him? which was my dad's biggest movie, and didn't get it. Right. Right. Yeah. Hollywood, man. Hollywood, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Pretty cool though. I like John Voight. He's in still, he's still crushing like all his parts, you like know, Billy Donovan or whatever. Yeah, such <laughs> a great actor. But but the thing that I always remember about John Voight is George Costanza having the pencil that he bit into. Did you see that Seinfeld episode? No, no. I didn't watch all the Seinfelds. I hate to say, I'm sorry. Yeah, I missed yeah. that one. There, there. People who are listening to the podcast, all five of them are laughing. So. <laughs> Uh, all right. Second, second topic. Now we'll go to the sports side. You've interviewed, you know, really, you know, many of the most iconic sports figures in, in LA history from, from the legends like Gretzky, Magic, you know, Tommy, um, Don Newcomb to, to the newer generation superstars, Kershaw, Trout, Kobe. What, what, what are your three favorite interviews that you've done? That's a, it's such a hard question. Um, because, yeah, you're right. Like, I got Kobe after 81, so that's yeah. something I can look back on, and, and, like, I was the first guy to interview him. Um, 
even though I didn't ask him, right, like, did he think about 100 points? So I, I definitely um, wish I could have asked him that. But you can't go back and, and otherwise I'd drive myself crazy. Yeah. Had some good ones with Kershaw. Um, these are like the guys that are Hall of Famers, legends. But I'm going to go with what means the most to me, you know, and, and, and so and in my life, like, I got to interview my dad at a Kings game. I had, to, I had to ask the guys in the truck and, you know, maybe I asked you, are you guys cool with that? You know, yeah. but I just thought it'd be kind of a neat moment, you know, yeah. just for me. I mean, it wasn't for anybody else just to say, Hey, you know what? My dad's here. And, and everybody was like really cool with it. And that's what makes realize, you know, we are a family, you know, and everybody was very appreciative and, yep. and, and it was a quick one. It was like 30 seconds or 45 seconds, maybe even less, but that was that one, something that I could always have, you know, um, as a great memory. Yeah. I interviewed uh, John McEnroe, who's meant so much to me in my life, courtside at a Lakers game. And he was just very sweet and like in the interview and he told me, you know, he said on air like how proud he was and how great I'm doing. I just thought, wow, what a great, I mean, yeah. moment where we used to just sit around and just like, you know, drink Heineken's and had no idea what my future was, you know, to that moment, you know. Yeah. Um, and then I got to interview Magic Johnson. Now this was before Magic's doing interviews everywhere, you know what I mean? Where <laughs> it was like kind of like we're, it's probably like oh six oh seven something like that and yep. and like magic johnson meant a great deal to me in my life i was a huge magic johnson fan and so that moment was like wow you know i was so excited for that so um yeah i think that they'll go with those three that um are probably the, like the most meaningful when i could sit back and think yeah i talked to guys that three guys that meant the most to me in my life you know yeah yeah, absolutely. That that your you know eighteen eighteen year old self that you never could have possibly imagined that you'd be a sportscaster interviewing those right. three guys. <laughs> 20, yeah, that's exactly right. Like yeah. you know, if you go back, think back, and then to think where your life is now, where you were when you were eighteen, and you just wouldn't think it'd be ever possible to be doing that. You're right, exactly. Off topic. We'll we'll get to the third three spree here in a second. But do you miss because you're you're for for those who aren't experts on the lexicon in, in sports broadcasting you're now really more of an anchor host than you are a reporter you, you still do some in-game reporting and things like that but not a lot of post-game stuff because you're on the desk the set hosting po- po- pre-games post-game shows things like that do you, do you miss being being a reporter in those situations pre-game post-game interviews yeah i do that's a great question i i do because we were in there and you were in there with me in those, those locker rooms and those scrums and, 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 you know, how hard you have to grind and, and, uh, um, you know, the positioning you got to get, or then when you get it, you know, the questions you have to ask, I think it's a really hard job. And, um, to be able to like, say, you, you know, that you, you did it and, and you got the good interview, you got the good questions. It's hard. I think what I do now, I, I it's, e- it's a little easier for me in a way, um, I'm glad. I think I ultimately it's le- it's less stress. Like there's more stress in those interviews with those athletes sometimes because if you don't ask the right question or if you ask a yes or no question, you might not get the answer. Or are they going to be nice? Or are they going to be mean? Or you know they don't necessarily sometimes want to. They don't always want to do it. Right? Yeah. That's not yeah. kind of what they want to do, but they do it anyway. So it's a tough it's a tough job. But we we had some. I'm glad I did it because. I think I learned so much about the craft and, and the business to be able to, and I thought I was pretty good at it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah. I miss it at times. Yeah. I was like, Oh, sometimes on the road, I'll get to do the, the Kings right. walk off interview. And I'm like, all right, let's see if you still got it. You know, can you still do this? <laughs> Cause you don't, you're right. It's like a muscle, right? It's like muscle memory. Uh-huh. And if you don't do something, come, you know, but luckily then I still have some, 
yeah. the muscle memory left there. Those are great, and, and at home with the Kings, you get a guy, a player comes out to the set uh, after wins. Yeah. So, you know, so so you you still get to do it a little bit, but I I, yeah. I figured you probably did miss it because there's nothing like that, especially big big moments in big games, the adrenaline of being in that locker room and, and doing those interviews. And like you said, trying to fight for position, you're boxing out, you know, 30 other reporters, cameramen, hanger on yeah. who are trying to get in front of this guy's locker. It's, it's a wild scene. <laughs> and also some of those, cele- some of those celebrations, right? We had some yeah. early Dodger celebrations, like when Kershaw was a rookie, you know, and you're soaking wet in there. Yeah. And <laughs> it was fun, man. It was, it was pretty cool. Yeah. Was some yeah. great ones. The two Laker championships, um, I did get some two good uh, Stanley Cup championships with yep. the Kings where I was doing more reporting. So yeah. got some great ones, man. Yeah. Wow, what a life. Third three-spree topic. As someone born and raised here and, and kind of in, in the Hollywood scene, I wanted to get your take on maybe the three most accurate TV or movie portrayals of life as an Angelino. What it's like to live here, grow up here, whether it be you know uh, as a kid or, or as an adult. Well, I picked I pick movies, three movies that felt resonated the most kind of with me and, you know, my life um, in, in show business, um, wanting to be an actor or knowing about movies, right? So I'm going back to the 90s, and I'll go with, um, I'll start with L.A. Story, uh, starring Steve, Steve Martin. Martin. And uh, I just thought that was, it's a, it's a comedy, but it shows how people are in Los Angeles that I thought uh, just about how stuck up people are or how they, they live their lives. There's like a scene where there's like earthquakes going on and people don't even know any even <laughs> budges, you know, they just continue on with their life or trying to get uh, reservations at restaurants or when um, his wife tells him that uh, she's sleeping with somebody else. And he says, this is how I find out. You tell me. Very good stuff. Uh, so, L.A. Story. It's funnier if you see it, of course. Oh, I love uh, that movie. Swingers and The Player, which was that uh, Robert Altman uh, film about uh, uh, Tim Robbins. I don't know if you saw it. Yeah. Um, so, those are the three. I love Swingers. I can see that anytime it's on. And The Player is like kind of behind the scenes about movies and executives and just it's it's just really mean spirited, you know, about actors in Hollywood and and uh, but I thought it was an excellent portrayal. So. Those yeah. are mine. Yeah, those are three great movies. When when I was coming up with this question, L.A. Story was one that popped into my head. Uh, I didn't live oh. in L.A. at the time. Um, I didn't move here till 2000, but I remember seeing that movie, and then when I moved out here, I knew that I had to watch it again because I, I remembered that it was, like, so dead on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's this scene where he's trying to get a reservation. At the, you know, it's just it's just hysterical. Yeah. So funny. Yeah. I mean, it's exaggerated, right? And And it wasn't like... I mean, when he's sitting there talking to that street sign or whatever, it got a little boring. But there's some funny scenes in it for sure. Jessica, uh, Sarah, Sarah Jessica, Jessica Parker. Parker's pretty hysterical. Yeah, yeah, she's great. Yeah, and and Swingers, of course. Um, I I moved out here a couple years after Swingers came out, and it came out when I was in college. It was like you know I probably watched it a thousand times, and then to move out here, it was like immediately I had to go try yeah. to find some of these clubs, these these hidden gems, and the Derby. Great movies, great three spree there. Thank you. That was uh, that was fun. Let's jump back. Yeah. Let's jump back to the career a little bit. So from. Getting, getting the first uh, on-air gig and doing some of the national um, updates that you were doing. And then I know that you hosted like a fantasy football show and, and uh, I think totally football and, and some national shows like that. 
were you thinking at that point that did you have any kind of uh, ambition of where you wanted to go from from there or was it just whatever whatever's in front of me I'm taking it and going with it yeah, I mean, I, was, I remember when I was doing the Totally Football and the Ultimate Fantasy Football show, and we did a show called Quarterback Confidential. Like, I was, like, the main host of all the shows that, you know, man, I'm on the Fox, you know, I'm right here on Fox Sports' main building hosting all these shows. And Fox Sports 1 was a show, it was like a kind of a comedy show that we did, kind of yeah. like Talk Soup, that I thought I was excellent at, you know, because I could, I, could, um, I could kind of use my acting chops and my sense of humor, and that was a funny, funny show. I thought it was great. And yeah. so, but then things started kind of drying up over there. It was like, it was like 2004 and there was less things they were going to do with totally baseball. But I, then I saw Steve Simpson, who was the, you know, the general manager, you know, um, president, right? Is that what we call him? Yeah. General manager? I guess general manager, general right? manager. of uh, Fox Sports West and prime ticket in the Fox, uh, sports building outside of an elevator. And at that point, like Van Earl, was going was leaving Van Earl Wright was leaving to go do radio and so like this spot was opening up and and we just had a talk and and uh I don't know what, what he said or whatever but I I followed up with him and um I thought like let me come let me come down there and see if I can take that opening I thought because man what that's perfect right just I, all these sports teams that I grew up rooting for maybe I have an opportunity and I'm still pretty young in my career, right? Only five years essentially in yeah. or less. Um, but I haven't done the reporting. I basically just done hosting, you know, I kind of skipped a step did the radio and then suddenly went right to being kind of a TV host anchor. Um, but I didn't do the reporting. So when that job opened up, I went and I auditioned. I was like me and Max Bratos, who's like crushing it at ESPN. Yeah. And, uh, for, luckily enough, I was able to, you know, get chosen. And then next thing you know, I'm just, hosting and working with you and we're doing and i remember you of course but back on you were probably there too at the building before you went over there our paths kind of crossed quite a bit early on and then um next you know i'm like doing the southern california sports report but also learning how to you know you know you might give me an assignment to go to ucla practice and just you got you get two minutes or 90 seconds or two minutes to you can't go more than two you know so it's a great way to you know, do a stand-up or do the stand-up in the middle or get the sound, write the little VOs. I mean, it was all brand new to me, and I hadn't done that before. So it was so exciting to suddenly have, like, hey, you've got – you go to practice, you got to come back, you got to cut it, edit it, you know, or write it, you know, give it to the editor, and then next thing you know, it's on TV. You know, it's like, wow, how exciting, you know. I, I really lo- love those sports shows that we did. It was – it was great, you know, and then before you knew it, it was like we were doing more live shows and then the FCSR went away and then, you know, you know, it all transitioned and everything. But the, the, that first year was fun doing those Southern California sports reports and covering the galaxy or the USC practice when they were Reggie Bush and Matt Leinart mm-hmm. and, or UCLA. I did a lot. Then I'm doing like sideline for those games and, you know, going into the locker rooms and doing, getting interviews. And uh, I mean, it was like, it was all brand new for me, man, but it was, um, I was like, this is it. I mean, that was once I got in there. I'm like, I just wanna, I just wanna stay here, really. And then I remember asking Mike Connolly when the, the NHL lockout was going on, and, and Van Earl had done, I believe, the, the, pretty sure he was the Kings guy yeah. before the lockout. And I said, with Van Earl gone, when when hockey comes back, I want the Kings. I love hockey. I love the Kings. And he's like, well, I don't know. We'll see. But he kept his word, and uh, hockey came back. And next, thing you know, I'm in the door with the Kings right out of the lockout. You know, and. 
I was not going to let that job go. I mean, that was a job because I, I finally had a team, right? Everybody else had their teams. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, this is, this is going to be my team. Yeah. And uh, that was just a great play by me. I'm so excited. Yeah, again, tenacious. You know, you went after something you saw. You went after it. You wanted it. You didn't let them back out of, of giving it to you. Going back to those Southern California sports report days, my favorite piece that you ever did, and I tried to Google it hoping beyond, you know, I knew it wouldn't be there, but it, and it's not. But mm. there was, there was. you're going to remember this. I'm sure maybe you're thinking oh. of it right now. But so, oh, yeah. so there was this, what, World Team Tennis League or something like that where, where they would come and play these matches and there was a Southern California team or something, or maybe my facts are wrong. But somehow Anna Kornikova in her heyday the ultimate heyday of her being the absolute biggest tennis superstar she's down at a a press conference in newport beach i think and and you go down there and we didn't give you i didn't give you any instructions on what to do just go down and cover it and you come back you had this amazing idea and you come back and you put this piece together and i see it and it's basically you trying to ask her for a date and it is the funniest thing i think we ever did uh, there, it, I still like crack myself up when I when I think about it. It was so <laughs> fun. <laughs> I know. How am I going to find that? I've got that on a DVD somewhere. But you're right. It was the best. I remember how it started though. Where I, I I said I was waiting in front of. Forget who went down there with me. Maybe it was Darren. I, I don't know. But I said I told him what I was going to do. I had a plan. I said, okay, when she starts walking in, that's when I'm going to start my stand up. And then when she sits down, I'm going to say, okay, she's here, and I'm going to get out. I had one take. That was it, yeah. you know? And so I wrote my stand-up, and I was something about how she's the most popular girl she's got, you know. But I said, but what people don't realize is that, you know, so I was really supporting her tennis, you know, like that yeah. she won doubles, you know, uh, majors, and, you know, she's I think I had a line like she's got more hits on the web than Dan Marino has passing yards, something stupid. And then I stepped out, and then there was the interview, and then I started hijacking the press conference. <laughs> I was asking her all these questions, but I started with how, what a great tennis player she was. People don't realize. And she says, thank you, thank you. I appreciate that. And then I asked her like if she likes jazz or something, right? I don't know. <laughs> at the end, she's like, what? And then finally, like, John Ireland was there, too, and he's looking at me like, what the heck is this guy doing? Shut up. The nerve. But then we put it together, and it turned out great, man. Yeah, it was so it tur- funny. It turned Thanks. out great. You always said, you always had my back after that. You said, that's the funniest one we've ever done. Yeah. No, man. I mean, you know, hey, sports is not the most important thing in the world. It should be fun. It should be light. It should be loose yeah. most of the time. And that- well, that's what I always tried to do, you know, and you always you gave do. me great, uh, you know, um, you always put me in great situations and gave me opportunities to, you know, to cover these sports and but I always I'm always trying to look for something that's like the entertainment like what's you know what what do I like to watch what do I think is funny how can I get this player um, to be human or to laugh or to say something funny I, I think that's that's what I like the most so I'm always trying to um, lighten it up and, and have fun and uh, you you do it a great works job most of the time. That. Yeah, you do a great job of that. There's no doubt about it. You you your shows are fun because you can tell you're having fun. You're enjoying it. You you genuinely love working with uh, the analysts that you're with. The the getting to be at these events and it just comes through. And that's that's a great thing. Um, do you think that your acting background? I'm I'm sure it it helped you. It must have, especially earlier in your career, being so comfortable so quickly on the air. Yeah. Oh, 
for sure. I mean, even though I had that low batting average, I mean, I still did get jobs and I did a lot of training. You know, I had a lot of scene study and plays that I did that don't show up on the resume. Just and practice at home. I mean, the voice is so important, right? In this in this business and yeah. being able to be be heard and you know and speak clearly, speak naturally. Um, simple as hitting your mark, you know, as, a, as an actor, I was always pretty good at that where you're just, you know, you're not looking down at where your feet are going to stop. You just have to naturally stop and talk at the same time. So I was always very good at that on some of the, uh, on standup. So yeah, for sure. It all comes from all the years and years of practice as an actor, um, with the, the same sports passion. So it was an easy transition. Like I, I really always wanted to do what I'm doing. So I've realized my true dream job. Like as an actor, I was like, ah, I don't, I don't feel like this person, but I'm, I get to play myself, get to be Patrick, but I get to do all different types of scenes, you know, and then there could be lows with a, a tough loss, losing the championship, you know, or the highest of highs of winning the championship and everything that comes in between. So I get all the different emotions and moments that I get to talk about. And every day it's something new. There's a new game. There's a new storyline. There's never, ever, ever the same. So what a blessing. Yeah. And we'll wrap up because I've taken up way too much of your time here. But you mentioned... I've taken up your time. <laughs> you mentioned huh. the, you know, the championships, uh, the Lakers, the Kings championships, the, the parades that, that we broadcast after those. You, you interviewed Kobe on the court you know, after his 81-point game just some amazing, amazing moments for, for you in your career. But I also imagine that getting to work with the likes of Bob Miller and Vince Scully, you know, the two greatest, you know, broadcasters in the history of sports are probably right up there. You know, when you, when and you got a long career still ahead of you, you know, another 30 years in this business, but what are, what are kind of the best moments for you that jump out for you? What do you remember the most that, you know, thinking back and reminiscing you pretty much covered them i mean that's without a doubt the you know the la kings winning um the, the stanley cup i think is is right up there the, the 2012 and then to do it again to come back from 3-0 uh against the the sharks and, and then to somehow uh, win that one in, in 2014 you yeah. know because you, you invest so much right you really we really invest a lot with the travel um the, the lakers winning those those two championships and, and being being a part of that, you know, and, and even though I didn't do all those road games, still all those home games, all those locker rooms, you know, I wasn't necessarily the host, right? I was the reporter yeah. um, for those teams. So I felt like, man, I felt like I was really a part of, you know, high-fiving these players, you know, after the interview. I'm like, wow, that's, you know, and Kobe, even after they won in Orlando, came over to me first. Like, he did the presser, and then he came into that room, and bam, he saw, he saw me. I said, let's do it. And Man. Got that first interview before any of these other reporters waiting, you know. But that's because of the relationships are so important. Relationship that I was able to to form with him, even though he was Kobe Bryant, and you know he probably doesn't know my name, but yeah. he saw me enough that I was able to <laughs> to build a relationship with him. He used to mess with me, right? Throw of towels course. at me and yeah. mess up my hair and whatnot. Yeah. And uh, um, so I'll remember those. But you're right. Also traveling on a bus with Vince Scully going to the game in Arizona and just hearing him tell stories about when he used to cover the masters. And you're just like, this is insane. You know, yeah. him knowing my name, you know, Bob Miller, you know, uh, helping him carry his, his bag down the stairs and him not wanting me to, cause he's just this 
tough Midwestern guy, you know, but helping him anyway. And just seeing him in the morning in the lobby and having coffee with him, you know, those are, those are fantastic memories. But ultimately it's going to come down to the championships, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I'm sure that there's more uh, in store. The Kings off to their best start in franchise history and looking great. And, you know, maybe maybe the Angels will get things into gear uh, next year and, and get, get Mike Trout into the postseason. And so, you know, you're going to have plenty of these moments ahead, right? Yeah. I mean, didn't even mention Mike Trout, right? I mean, my gosh, the, the greatest baseball player I've ever seen. Yeah. And I get to watch him play every day. It's just like, man, I mean, people don't realize, I guess, because we're out here on the West Coast and – even the Kings, there's this East Coast bias, and they're the, they have the best record in, in the league, and, and their power rankings came out today, and they're sixth in one and 11th in the other, you know. <laughs> so they don't get a ton of respect, but it's yeah. still fun. You, know, you feel like you're part of something, and that's what's great about these teams that we cover as, as team partners, but they really treat us, treat us really well and, you know, uh, welcome us in, and, and it's fun, especially this new, this new Kings regime, you know, with knowing Luke and knowing Rob, you know joking with these guys i'm like man this is amazing so cool yeah patrick my friend i can't thank you enough for doing this and and i'm just gonna you know i'm uh, one of my fond best memories of of my career at fox certainly was was you know getting the relationships with the people that i worked with and i'm happy that that we're friends and and this is the kind of guy that patrick is right we're in a fantasy football league we've been in it for 11 years now and I've had a little bit of success in the league. It's, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of been my thing. I've won a few of the championships and one year out of the blue, Patrick always hosts us for the, for the draft at his house, you know, gracious again, his wife makes the best chocolate chip cookies. Thanks summer. And one, one year out of the blue, we show up for the draft and Patrick pulls out a huge trophy cup thing that he presents to me because I I was the defending champion and he named it the Copalacus Cup and it's like the most prized possession that I own to this day and and that was like out of the blue that you know something that Patrick just did and you're awesome man thank you oh thanks bullet and then you went and win it again you know so now you've got your name out of like six times out of the eleven or something <laughs> crazy that's pretty dominant that's why like there's the Lombardi Trophy. And there's the Copalacus Cup. That's just the way, that's the way it goes. The other guys might not like it, but uh, they're going to have to deal with it. And you go ahead and engrave your name on there again, though. I don't want it showing up next year without that engraving on there. Oh, it's on there. It's on there. It's All on. right. Yeah. You, you did it already? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> well, listen, uh, Sean, thanks for having me. And I, listen, and you, you, you helped me a lot, right? So thank you very much for um, all those years we worked together, and you had assigned me some um, – some, some unbelievable memories for me and you, you uh, always were very supportive and um, helped me out a lot so thanks you're the best man take care we'll talk soon okay buddy bye-bye All right, bye that'll do it for episode 25 of the inside job podcast i can't thank you enough again for downloading for listening for giving me feedback for liking on itunes and, and rating with five stars or two stars or whatever stars that's uh, so much appreciated Thank you, and until next time, pop the trunk.